0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. The Word of God tells us this. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. The driving concern, if you recall, from our first couple of messages in First Timothy that Paul has on his mind as he writes this brief letter to his beloved young sort of apprentice, Timothy, the driving concern that's on his mind as he writes this letter is that Timothy, who he's left behind in Ephesus, the church that he planted years before, Is now having to face within the church conflict and the conflict has arisen because false teachers have infiltrated the body And these are not just false teachers from the outside of the church who sort of made their way in But it seems quite evident that these are false teachers who have risen from within the church itself Even likely from among the elders of the church And so it is a very grave and serious situation that has developed in this church at Ephesus and Paul is gravely concerned about it He's gravely concerned about it on a number of fronts number one. He planted the church He invested a significant chunk of his life in this place and in these people and he's now gone on about his ministry his missionary ministry planting churches elsewhere And uh, and he's concerned he's not present to deal with it Timothy is present and Timothy is a younger man a less experienced man He doesn't necessarily have the same stature in the eyes of the church He doesn't necessarily have the same experience that Paul has And so he knows that he may be a more vulnerable target as a leader in the church than Paul himself would be were he there. And so Paul is concerned for his friend and his young apprentice. He's concerned for Timothy on a personal level because it seems like Timothy may be exasperated. It seems as though he may be on the verge of giving up and just throwing in the towel altogether. And Paul wants him to endure. Paul wants him to stay the course. Paul wants him to stay in the fight. And so we're going to see as we walk our way through this, Paul continuing to tell him, Timothy, continue to fight the good fight. Timothy, don't give up the battle. Just continue to go at it. So he's concerned about Timothy. He's also concerned about the church. Paul always was concerned about the churches that he planted. And not the church as a corporate body, but the people who are the church. He as we'll see a little later this morning He carried the weight of the struggles and the pains and the griefs that the people within the church carried themselves it was a very personal thing to him And so for false teachers to come from the outside and false teachers to arise from the inside uh, It broke his heart And so he writes this letter to come alongside Timothy and to help him uh, sort of in the eyes of the church Because the letter was a personal letter to Timothy, but it was meant to be read publicly. And so this is Paul's way of coming alongside and helping Timothy fight the fight. And helping him deal with the the false teachers who have arisen in this church. And so we see right at the outset, Paul doesn't even give his normal sort of a lengthy greeting. He gives an abbreviated greeting and he goes right into... This whole issue of warning against the false teachers who are there right out of the shoot He's very concerned about its front of his mind and so he goes right on. And right after the text that we're looking at this morning, he circles back around to that same issue. And he gets to the point where he's even going to call names of some folks that need to be called out. So it's a pretty egregious sort of a thing that's going on. And it's egregious enough for Paul to, to go at it from the beginning and to name names and to call out individuals who are uh, perpetrating this, at least perhaps the ringleaders of it all. And so in between these two sections where he's coming at the false teachers and this issue of false teaching in the church we, we have this section that we look at today It's sort of a it sort of looks a bit like an aside from the main argument that's going on But in fact, I think it's very intentional what Paul is doing here Paul is giving us a glimpse inside of his heart And he's giving a glimpse inside of, of what it looks like to be a gospel-centered leader uh, Timothy needed to see that and the church needed to see that because it's going to provide for them and for us A remarkable contrast to the false teachers to whom he's speaking against And so paul sort of opens his heart and he gives us a bit of his personal testimony He gives a, a bit of how he assesses himself and how he assesses his own ministry And where he sees himself in the spectrum of the kingdom of god And it is providing for us a remarkable contrast to these arrogant pious self-exalted False teachers who are ravaging this church And at the outset I want to say just make the statement that this is one of the primary responsibilities of church leaders It's to to confront false teaching to confront error to confront heresy when it arises within the body of Christ And and so what Paul is doing is what any faithful shepherd would and should do in the body over which he's entrusted Shepherds are supposed to protect the sheep and there's nothing more dangerous to the sheep than false teaching that would lead them away from Christ that would lead them away from the gospel that would lead them down a road that would cause them pain and difficulty in their lives and would cause a breach in their relationship with the Lord And so from time to time, serious dangers arise, and when they arise, a faithful shepherd has to address those things and has to come at them. But one of the things that I see in the body of Christ at large, at least in our culture today, are two sort of errors when it comes to this issue of confronting false teaching. I see on the one side uh, many who just refuse to confront error altogether. Many who are entrusted with leadership in the body of Christ, who are pastors over flocks, who are responsible to, to guard and protect the body against false teaching, who just simply refuse to do so, who just simply ab- simply abdicate that responsibility and cede it to someone else or, in most cases, to no one else. And so doctrine goes unchecked within the body, and the results are are Terrible. So there's the one error, is this refusal to confront error altogether. Maybe out of a heart that doesn't want to disrupt, that doesn't like confrontation, that doesn't like conflict, that doesn't want to hurt someone's feelings or be seen as ungracious, they just refuse to do that. I see on the other side of it, though, another error that really troubles me as well, I think as much, maybe more, and that's those within the body of Christ in our culture uh, who seem to take great pride and joy in confronting Anything that they perceive to be a false teaching. And we're not talking about, at least I'm not in this moment, talking about things that are first order doctrine, like gospel doctrine, like the the inerrancy of Scripture, the deity of Christ. I'm talking about every secondary and tertiary issue and below where they have a firm conviction. They deem those things the gospel truth, and anyone who sees them divergently is a heretic who is only good for being attacked. And it doesn't take you very long online to see that the blogosphere and the evangelical Christian world right now is littered with people who seem to take great pride and joy in appointing themselves as the the Theological judge and jury and executioner of the whole Christian world In the mix of all of that I think are some very well-meaning people who have just gone astray but there's something, there's something that bothers me about people who take great joy in constantly confronting error. Particularly when you read what they write and hear what they say and it seems to come out of a sort of a, a some sort of a, a, a strange pleasure in being argumentative and combative and trying to win a fight of some sort. Sometimes picking a fight in order to win the fight. One of the things that I found in our local body and in my years of shepherding the church is that when people read a lot of that, a healthy appetite of those kinds of things, what it tends to breed in the local church believer who reads much of that is anger, argumentative spirit, a lack of grace and mercy towards others who see things differently. And some sort of a sick pleasure in just confronting others. It stokes pride. Because after all, if I've got all the right answers and I can prove that everybody else is wrong, boy, I really look smart and I really look good and I really look spiritual. And none of these are good and godly fruits of the Spirit. And so I think when I look this morning at this text, one of the things that I want to... To, to push toward you as the body of Christ is what we see here is how a gospel-centered leader a godly faithful leader How he balances this issue of confronting false teaching he does not Commit the error of just abdicating the responsibility and leaving the church to duke it out on their own He deals with what needs to be dealt with but he does it in a spirit of gratitude a spirit of humility a spirit of patience And he does it in a way that doesn't come off as prideful and arrogant and joyful in conflict. And I think we all have something to learn from that. I, as a pastor, have something to learn from that. You, I think, in in your sphere of influence, as you navigate in a world full of people who see things different than you, uh, have something to, I think, learn from that. There are many things in this text that I'll try to pull out as we move through. But overarching, I want you to see how a gospel-centered leader balances this confrontation with false teachers. And and this whole thing begins, really, and I want to sort of shape it this way. The godly leader does this by taking sort of a sober assessment of himself and his own ministry before he begins to assess someone else. I use the word sober not because I'm terribly familiar with drunkenness, but I I, I use it because it's just a word that that communicates to me clear-headedness. There are an awful lot of things that can sort of cloud our thinking in life. Uh, uh, Certainly alcohol can do that, right? If we consume too much alcohol then, you know, it it inebriates us. We're no longer sober. We're not clear-headed. We would say things that we wouldn't normally say. We evaluate things in ways that are sort of askew from reality, and we don't see things as they are, and we don't evaluate things as they are. But there are a lot of things that can intoxicate our thinking beyond alcohol. And I think one of the, the prominent things that perhaps is most egregious here among the false teachers in Ephesus is pride. Pride can intoxicate our, our thinking. It can cloud our minds. It can have the same effect on our, our way of looking at life and ourselves and other people that alcohol has. It begins to, to, to place a grid over our eyes that evaluates other people wrongly, that evaluates ourself wrongly, that misunderstands the circumstances around us. We don't always assess ourselves in very sober sorts of ways in sort of a funny way i can I can identify with this just yesterday. I had a little fellowship here in the, in the gym yesterday afternoon were the middle schoolers and high schoolers and I came out to that and there were some uh, some some uh, spry young bucks there that were wanting to play some basketball and um, and I can remember back in the day uh, I had some skills when it came to basketball <laughs> something about. Uh, My assessment of myself at 45 years old was less than sober yesterday My mind tells me oh, I can do that with those guys But this morning my body has a whole different message What were you thinking man? There's pain everywhere It was not a very sober assessment of my actual skill set today But we need to be sober-minded about how we see ourselves when it comes to things that matter And that's the first thing I want you to see in this text from the Apostle Paul. He has a very sober assessment of himself He is not unclear about who he is as a man. He is not unclear about who he is in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that sets the foundation for everything that he's going to say in the letter. But it sets the foundation particularly for how he's going to deal with these false teachers and the spirit in which he does it. Look with me sort of at the central verse in the text this morning. Verse 15. Paul writes this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul gives us the baseline assessment of his self. When Paul looks in the mirror and he asks the question, who is Paul? He has a very succinct and very clear-headed answer about that inside himself. Paul is the worst sinner in the world. That is his self-assessment. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, look, when I look in the mirror in the morning and I assess who I am as a man, here I can summarize it by saying this, I am the worst sinner in the world. Christ came to save sinners, yes, indeed, but I'm the worst one. I'm the worst one. When he looks at himself, he, he, there's, there's no room for self-exalting pride. And, and his first thoughts about himself are not, man, I'm a great teacher, man, I'm a sacrificial saint, I'm a great evangelist, I'm an exalted apostle. All of those things were true about him. But in his own mind and in his own heart, his first thought about himself is, I'm the worst sinner the world has ever seen. No matter how many converts he won, No matter how many churches he planted None of that could overcome his own personal sinfulness In spite of the mountain of of evidence that he belonged to christ and the fruit of his life and the fruit of his ministry in his own eyes None of those things and even the aggregate of all of those things couldn't move the needle not even one Inch toward earning favor with god Not one inch No matter who he was dealing with at any given time, in his mind, between the two of them, he was the worst sinner. Always and in every case. Never one time do we see Paul comparing himself to other people and judging himself more worthy of the grace of Christ. Never. There's no hint of, well, you know, when I look at my life, I have got some sin over here. I did this and that, but boy, I'm not nearly as bad as she is. Over there. She's, she's a pretty bad one. Whoever Paul was with, wherever he was, whatever congregation, whatever individual, though his assessment of himself was always in the group, I'm the worst. The worst sinner there is. I'm the foremost. I'm the, the first. I'm on top of the heap. And because he never lost sight of that, he never lost sight of the glory of the gospel of Jesus either. And that's what he says here in this statement in verse 15. It's a a trustworthy, this saying is trustworthy and deserving. By the way, there are going to be five statements as we work our way through uh, sort of the pastoral epistles where he talks about a statement that's trustworthy and deserving of acceptance. But he says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is a, a perfect summary of the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And by the way, I'm the worst sinner of them all. If you want to summarize the gospel, you could summarize it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He begins with the, the pre-existence and the incarnation of Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world. He existed prior to that. He existed somewhere prior to that. And we know where he existed. He existed from eternity past with the Father and the Holy Spirit and a Holy Trinity. But the one who existed forever, he came, Jesus Christ, came into the world he was born into the world he took on flesh and he became became a man he was born as a man in human flesh that he might come close to his creation and that he might ultimately after living a perfect life lay down his life on a cross where he will shed his blood as an atoning sacrifice that he might literally save sinners like paul It was why he came. And it was that gospel message that Paul never could get over. And the reason he could never get over the glory of the gospel was he could never get beyond the reality that in his own heart he was the worst sinner that he could ever imagine. He was the chief. He was the worst. He was number one. The worst sinner in the world that Paul knew was Paul. And you notice in that statement that it's in the present tense. He doesn't say... I was the worst sinner that ever was. What does he say? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I am the foremost. It wasn't like I used to be a filthy, rotten sinner, but now, hey, I'm a pretty decent guy. Nope. He he never could get beyond the depths of his own personal sin. And the older he got, the more deeply acquainted he seems to get with this. If you go to Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 18, he's reflecting again on his own self and his own heart. And he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good i want but the evil i do not want is what i keep on doing i mean what believer hasn't wrestled with that right i I know what i ought to do and i really want to do it but i keep doing the wrong stuff and the stuff that i don't want to do that i know is wrong i continue to do it paul saw that in his own heart and he concluded at the end of that in verse 24 wretched man am i wretched man am i who can deliver me from this body of death I want to suggest to you that a sign of spiritual maturity in the life of a believer is this. The more mature we become in our walk with Christ, the more acquainted we become with our own personal sinfulness, not the less. The more we become like Christ, the more acquainted we become with our own personal sinfulness, not less. Even as god sanctifies us and begins to shave out of our lives the obvious kinds of sins That we struggled with early on in our walk with the lord He begins to open our eyes and reveal to us deeper roots of those sins that go deeper and further than we ever imagined And are far harder to root up And we see that in the life of paul. He had a sober assessment of himself. I'm the worst sinner there is You see he could never forget his past And he saw the ramifications of it in the present. But if you go to verse 13, he tells us a little bit about his past in the beginning. He says in verse 13 this. He says, though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Maybe you don't know much about the Apostle Paul, or maybe you do. Before he came to Christ, he was a a, a violent, angry, hateful persecutor of Christians. That was who he was. He was a very well-trained religious man. And religious Judaism of his day, he was very well trained and very highly skilled and very intelligent and he was very good at what he did, but he was a very violent and angry and hateful man and he was a persecutor of Christians. That was, that was the aim and the thrust of his life, to find people who belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ, to root them out, to persecute them, and even have them killed. In Acts chapter 8 verse 3, we're told this, that Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I mean, he was a, he was a zealous Jew who was going after the church and literally dragging men and women out of their homes and throwing them in prison for nothing other than being a Christian. He describes himself before King Agrippa in Acts 26 this way. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. We, we tend to exalt this man Saul Paul to sainthood, but you need to understand, before he came to Christ... He was a vile and wretched man. There is no Muslim ISIS zealot that is more committed to his cause than the Apostle Paul was to the same cause. He was that kind of a man. And it it didn't matter how post-salvation God used him in ministry or whatever fruit there was that was born, he never forgot who he was. He never let the gravity of his sin and his rebellion and his hatred for Christ fade in his memory. It was always very present in his mind and in his thinking. He never got to a place where he began to really think he was somebody. Never. And he knew he didn't deserve grace. It's clear in this text that he knew, I am a man who did not deserve the grace of God. Paul was a brilliant man. He was a gifted man. He was a persuasive man. He was a determined man. But none of that earned the grace of God. And he knew that there was no good that he could do that could outweigh the mountain of his sin. The only thing that he deserved from God, he knew, was his judgment and his wrath. But that's not what Paul got. Twice in our text this morning, he says, but I received Mercy I received mercy This is who I was. I'm the worst sinner in the world in my past. I was the worst sinner in the world You can't imagine what a vile human being I was and even in the present. I am still the worst sinner I know what I deserve from God is his wrath and his rejection, but marvel beyond marvel. What I've gotten is his mercy I received mercy Mercy is God withholding what we deserve What Paul deserved was his wrath and yet God didn't pour out his wrath on Paul He poured it out on Jesus instead And Paul could never grasp why God would show him mercy He says I received mercy and God's grace Overflowed did you see that his grace Overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus Jesus You see Paul's his his religious training had no place for grace His legalistic Judaism that he had been trained in, there was no room for grace at all. It was all about the law, and it was all about legalism, and lawbreakers deserve to be punished. And it seems that at least that sort of sentiment is the thing that is underlying the false teaching that's going on in the church at Ephesus. And so Paul was very well acquainted with that. That was his life and his whole mindset before. And Paul was one of the ringleaders doling out the the legal punishment that he thought people deserved. And Paul says, mercy came to me. And God not only gave me mercy by withholding His wrath, but His grace has overflowed to me. If mercy is God withholding what we actually deserve, then grace is the undeserved, unmerited favor of God that He gives us that we don't deserve. Things like forgiveness and restoration and love and His friendship and adoption into His family. All of those things are gifts of grace. Those are undeserved, unearned things that God just lavishes on. People like Paul and like you and like me. And notice he says that God's grace Came to him not by a little stream, but it overflowed toward me And when you when you think of god's grace or at least when paul thinks of god's grace coming to him in his sinful state He doesn't see god's grace as a little stream that trickles his way He sees it like niagara falls that is pouring at him every single day And it's an endless supply that that just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming however much of a wretched sinner he is god has more grace that overflows in his direction It's an endless deluge of grace upon grace upon grace. It was only by the grace of God that he was found when he was lost. It was only by the grace of God that he can see when he used to be blind. And Paul struggles to understand why. Why would God, why would a righteous and holy God have mercy on me? Why would he overflow grace in my direction? Well, Paul comes up with two reasons in our text why God might do that This is the best he can come up with The reason number one we find there in the text But I received mercy Verse 13 because I had acted Ignorantly in unbelief Reason number one, the only thing I can think of Paul says is that God was just being gracious and merciful to me because I was Just an ignorant fool. that didn't know any better I was ignorant I my my rebellion was in ignorance Now he's not trying here to escape sort of culpability for his sin He's not trying to to dodge responsibility by saying hey, I just didn't know any better You can't hold me accountable. No, he fully understood. He was accountable to the Lord But what he's saying is this he's saying look It's perhaps God had mercy on me because at least my horrible rebellion for which I'm responsible wasn't Intentional rebellion against the truth that I knew I just didn't know any better Maybe God had pity on me because of that. And we know he didn't know any better. When Christ meets him on the road to Damascus and slams him on his face and speaks to him audibly, the only thing he can come up with is to say is, "Who are you, Lord?" He's clueless. Now, we don't have time to go there this morning, but in Numbers chapter 15, if you're taking notes, you can sort of make reference to that. Paul is drawing on an Old Testament distinction between sort of unwitting sin and deliberate sin. In the Old Testament law, there were two different categories of sin, at least one that was unwitting or unconscious and the other that was deliberate. And there were in the law of the Old Testament. There were different sort of consequences for deliberate versus uh, um, um, unwillful, if you will, or unwitting sin. So he's drawing sort of off of that stream of thought here, and he's thinking, well, maybe it's that. Maybe, maybe God uh, chose to be merciful to me because I was just an ignorant fool who didn't know any better. And maybe God just has pity on ignorant people. Well, we know He does. And in chapter 23 of Luke, verse 34, Jesus hanging on the cross—or not hanging on the cross, yeah, hanging on the cross—in fact, says this: He looks out over the people who are crucifying. Do you remember what He says? Father, forgive them, for they—they they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing He looks out and he has pity on people who are actually perpetrating this great evil on him because he looks at them And he understands that they're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. They do not know what they're doing They're literally killing the son of god and they have no clue So at least in that regard we see that christ has pity on people who are sinning out of ignorance Just as a side application, this isn't the point of this text, but I I just want to mention it to you in that context. That there needs to be, at least in our hearts, some recognition that lost people indeed are blind and ignorant of the truth. There needs to be some recognition of that in our hearts as we navigate with lost people. That lost people are blind and ignorant of the truth. They literally do not know what they're doing. And I think if we can keep that in the forefronts of our mind, it gives us patience with them. It gives us patience as we navigate with people when we understand, yes, you are actively engaged in sin in all sorts of ways, but you don't know any better. And unless God opens your eyes, you won't know any better. I think, unfortunately, we can tend towards sort of an anger, a frustration, a judgmentalism towards people who don't know Christ who live out sin in sort of rebellious ways. And instead of being patient with them, we cast them off Or we judge them in ways that are not helpful to the relationship or the conversation. We treat them as though they ought to behave differently than they're actually capable of behaving. Because they don't know Christ. I think Jesus gives us the example. And sort of secondarily as Paul is speaking here, we get this idea that that there is some level of patience and mercy that we should have with people who are lost because they're ignorant. And they don't know what they're doing. But paul comes up with two solutions one is this or one answer to his question I I, maybe god's just merciful to me because I was ignorant I didn't know better and he just had pity on me for that reason And then the second reason you're going to love this one. This one I think is actually kind of humorous Paul didn't find it humorous, but he says here's the second reason I've been thinking about this Why would god be merciful and gracious to a filthy rotten scoundrel like me? Here's the answer that paul comes up with because god wanted to demonstrate hope to all sinners by finding and saving the worst sinner he could possibly find Paul says, I've got it. I've got it. Here's here's what God's doing. He's looking out over the world trying to find the the filthiest rotten scoundrel he can find because he wants to make a point that if he saves that guy, it's it's a testimony to everybody else in the world that no matter how deep your sin is, if he can save that guy, he can save you. That's how Paul sees himself. The real conclusion he comes to in his heart is that very thing. Verse 16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ, might display perfect patience, his perfect patience, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God needed an earthly example of a sinner so that other sinners could look and conclude, wow, if God can save that guy, he could save anybody. God wanted to make clear Paul said that, that that he can cover his that the blood of Christ can cover the deepest darkest worst kind of rebellion that any human heart could ever have by the way that's what's in my heart and by saving me he's showing you that no matter how deep and dark and extended your sin is his grace can flow to you just the same there's nobody that's too lost that can't be found Paul said if I can be found anybody can be found there's nobody whose sin is so dark that it can't be covered by the blood of Christ. If Christ can cover his blood, can cover my sin, he can cover anybody's sin. There's nobody that's too blind that they can't be made to see. If, if, if Christ can open my eyes as, as deeply rooted in my rebellion was and help me to see the truth, he can open your eyes too. He can open anybody's eyes. Paul says, that's why, that's why God saved me. Because I'm that guy. I'm that filthy rotten worst sinner that he could find to be an example for everybody else that was how Paul assessed himself it was a pretty sober minded assessment of himself but the point is true if somebody like Saul could be saved anybody can be saved if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you've been wrestling with your sin in your life and you, you're, 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 you have a very vivid reality or sort of understanding that you've rebelled against the Lord and you've done things that have wounded and disappointed and rebelled against Him and you're wondering, could God ever love me? Could God ever cover that? Even though I did those things, could I belong somehow to God and His people? Is there any way that, that God could restore me from what I've done? The answer to that question is yes, absolutely, indeed He can. And Paul, if he were standing here in front of you today, would say, if he did for me, he can do it for you. Run to Jesus and see. There's nobody that's beyond the grace of Christ that flows from the cross. And you contrast this with sort of the self-assessment of many believers today. Many believers that I come into contact with, and I suspect probably that you come into contact with, take pride in exalting themselves and tearing other people down. They take pride in comparing themselves to other people and comparing themselves favorably in the comparison. There's no sense of this sort of sober self-evaluation. Just arrogant pride. You see that sort of in egregious ways, but it also pops up in more subtle ways. It pops up, I see it, frequently In the context of marital conflict and marital counseling scenarios. It's almost always the same when there's conflict within a marriage. And it's almost always the same sitting in the chair of the counselor. You talk to husband, you talk to wife. And the conversation almost always begins the same way. The words are different and the situations are different in many ways, detail-wise. But it's often the same story. He sits down and he says, now listen, I know I've done some bad things, but I've got to tell you about her. She's driving me crazy. I can't take it anymore. An hour later, she sits down and she says, let me tell you, I know I'm not perfect. I've got sin in my life. I've done some things. But that guy, that filthy beast, man, he is hes a mess. You've got to fix him. I'm using hyperbole, you understand. But I'm making a serious point. The reality is, even in the context of marriage, as long as we see as long as we measure ourselves by somebody else and see ourselves up here and them down here, we cannot make progress in the counseling. It's not until we get to the place where the Apostle Paul is in our text and we can look in the mirror and we can honestly say, the worst sinner in the world that I know is not him, it's not her, it's me. I'm the worst. Christ has to redeem me. Or nothing gets better. Paul looked at himself. He had a very sober-minded view of himself. Compared to anyone else, I'm the worst sinner. Bar none. none. The second thing I want you to see, we really just don't have very much time but to touch the surface of this, is not only did Paul have a very sober assessment of himself, he had a very sober assessment of his position in his ministry. A very sober assessment of his position in his ministry. We see that in the very beginning. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul was an apostle appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the apostle tasked with taking the gospel to the gentiles and god used him to do remarkable things in ministry He took the gospel into a place where no one had he he planted numerous churches He ends up writing 13 perhaps 14 books of the new testament I mean, it's remarkable how god used this man's ministry But paul understood from start to finish that his ministry was a ministry from god It was not a ministry of his own doing That it was God who appointed him, it was God who strengthens him, and it was God who ultimately has judged him and will judge him. There was no sense in which he saw himself as a self installed, self uh, sort of self sustained and self evaluated minister. He understood that his position was not something that he has received because he was special or because he was gifted or because he was smart or because he was somehow better than anyone else. It wasn't something that he had earned or something that he had deserved. But God had, just like he had saved him, he had sovereignly appointed him and he had sovereignly strengthened him and he will sovereignly judge him. He didn't appoint himself. He didn't get appointed by some sort of a popular vote. It was the Lord who installed him. He didn't engage in ministry to exalt himself. He he engaged in it to exalt Christ. He didn't engage in ministry to please men. He did it to please Christ because Christ was the one that appointed him. And that's the proper foundation really for all sorts of ministry not just the kind that I do vocationally But any kind of ministry that a believer engages in whether it be career or volunteer it doesn't matter how you got into the position of ministry you're there because the lord appointed you to that And if you're not doing it out of a heart that understands i'm here because the lord has called me to this Then you won't last you won't make it you will not be sustained in that ministry If you think you're there because of your skills or your wisdom or your intellect or because whatever it is that you bring to the table, you'll find out really quickly that that won't sustain you. Only a true inner sense that the Lord has put you there and that you're working for Him sustains. It's what sustained Paul. It's what strengthened him. Paul's ministry was miserably painful I wish we had a little more time today to just sort of track through this, but you can track through it on your own, the kinds of things that he dealt with. I'll give you one little snippet of it in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. He says this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes, lest one. That's I got beaten up that many times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. In fact, if you go back to Acts 14, he was stoned and he was left unconscious. They dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. Spent a night and a day at sea. I was shipwrecked on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, many on a sleepless night, hunger and thirst, without food and cold exposure. Then on top of all that fun stuff, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He suffered physically, he suffered emotionally. Ministry for him was painful and it was hard. In fact, if you go to Second Corinthians chapter one, verse eight and following, he says this to the Corinthians in, in Corinth. He says, For for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul says, We were so far at the end of our rope that we just wished we were dead. It was ministry had become so difficult. We just despaired for our life altogether. From a human perspective, he had no ability to endure any of that. The only reason he did is because Christ strengthened him. Christ strengthened him. Over and over again when Paul got to the end of his rope, it was the Lord who strengthened him and kept him in the place that he called him to. Listen, ministry is stressful and it's difficult. Whether it's career ministry or volunteer ministry, it's stressful and it's painful and it's difficult. If you're going to serve the Lord anywhere, you're going to have pain. And you're going to have difficulty. It is never going to be a bed of roses. I don't care if that's you serving in the nursery. I don't care if that is you volunteering in some missions ministry. Serving however you want to serve, there will be difficulty and there will be pain and it will be hard. And the only way to endure in it is to Find strength from the Lord. You'll never have enough in and of yourself. I read some statistics this week about pastor burnout. It's fascinating. I'll share a few of these with you just so you get the sense. A particular statistics said this 75% of pastors in this study report being, quote, extremely stressed or highly stressed. 90% feel fatigued or worn out every week. 40% report a serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. 78% of those surveyed were forced to resign from their church at some point in history, and 63% of them had that happen at least twice. 80% in another study said this 80% will not be in ministry 10 years later, and only a fraction make it a lifelong career. Get this, on average, seminary-trained pastors last only five years in church ministry. Of those surveyed in this survey, 91% have experienced some form of burnout in ministry and 18% say they are, quote, fried to a crisp right now. 70% in this survey constantly fight depression. 50% said they feel so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but they can't find another job. 70% said they do not have someone Anyone they could consider a close friend Now I can't vouch for all of those statistics. It's just statistics But I think the heart of them is probably true And the heart of it is ministry's hard Christ has never promised us that it would be easy. In fact, he said from the very beginning if you want to serve me There will be pain You will be persecuted It will be hard And the only way you'll make it is if you look to me for strength if you think you've got it inside You'll fail and you'll flake out and you'll burn out if you think you can do it on your own if you think other people can sustain you They won't Only I can do that Paul had a very sober assessment of his own self He's the worst of sinners and he had a very Sober assessment of his ministry. I'm appointed by Christ. I'm sustained by Christ and Christ is my judge And that's all there is to it and what that did for him is it created inside of him a humility a patience a sense of gratitude, and the way this text ends, a heart filled with worship. In spite of the pain, in spite of the difficulty, he never could get beyond the fact that God would save and redeem a wretched man like him. And the more he thought about it, all it drove him to do was sing a song of worship. That's what verse 18 is all about. Let me just conclude by saying this. People who have been genuinely redeemed by the Lord are people who desire to live like Him. And those who have been recipients of mercy and grace and the patience of Christ delight to offer those things to other people. When we see other believers or when we look at our own selves and we see a lack of mercy a lack of grace, a lack of patience with other sinners, one of two things is probably true. We've either never truly come to terms with the depths of our own depravity, or we've forgotten how much mercy, grace, and patience Christ has displayed toward us. One of the two. And the reason Paul could address false teachers here with strength and with a direct sort of a way, but do it at the same time in a spirit of humility and gratitude and worship and patience, is because he never lost sight of the fact that he was the worst of sinners. That whatever he'd accomplished was only accomplished because Christ had done it through him. And so he was going to speak for Christ. But he was going to do it in the manner in which Christ came at him. Mercy, grace, patience. I wonder if you look at your own life and your own self, do you see those categories that work in your life? Do you see a heart of gratitude? Do you see a heart of, of mercy, a heart of grace? A heart that is patient with other people? A heart that understands that there are times when we have to confront things that are un- ungodly? but doesn't particularly delight to do that. When you look at your own self in the mirror, how do you assess assess yourself? Can you honestly say when you look in the mirror that you truly believe you are the worst of sinners? Or do you think you measure a little bit better than other people? The reality is the worst sinner in the world that I know is me. And the worst sinner in the world that you know is you. But the good news of the Gospel is Jesus Christ came to save sinners just like you and just like me. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to understand that He came, He lived, and He died and shed His blood for a sinner like you. He saved worse than you. And He will save you if you'll run to Him believing In Him, placing your faith and trust in what He's accomplished on the cross for you. Abandoning any sort of effort to earn His favor by your own good works, but trusting in Him to save you fully. He will do so right this minute. Let's bow our head and close our eyes. Lord Jesus, I marvel at the Apostle Paul and the fact that he never got over the Gospel. And I marvel at that because... I know how prone I am to wander in my own heart and to forget the grace and the mercy and the patience You've shown with me. And I know the moment that begins to happen inside my own heart, other horrible things begin to creep up like pride and anger and judgmentalism, argumentative spirit. I pray that this morning You would help me and help all those who are in this room who know You as Lord and Savior, Jesus remind us of the depths of your mercy and grace and patience with us. Imprint that so deeply on our minds and in our hearts that we could never possibly view somebody else as a worse sinner than us. Help us to have a very sober assessment of who we are before you. And as we seek to serve you in the world, give give us a sober assessment of what that looks like, that you're the one who appoints us, you strengthen us, and you ultimately judge us. There's nothing that comes out of what we do for you that exalts us. Help us, Lord, particularly as we navigate with lost people, to be patient and merciful and gracious even as we speak to them the truth. Because that's what you were with us. Lord, make these things a reality for us. We pray for Your honor and for Your glory. Amen.